0: What you'll hear on Patreon.
1: How um how well this kind of um, ideas work. I mean you have from UNICEF, yeah, again, let's say from Madagascar, you have then these findings, like I cannot say the, the exact numbers, but let's say seventy percent of young children are victims of violence by the hands of their own family members as a parents. So you have like, uh, I mean, you have two things. Here. You have the children and you have the parents, right? So this sounds so good because you you it, it, it shows an opportunity to, to rescue, to save children. So you focus on that. And that's why it is so difficult. So when you criticize it, then uh, you immediately some, uh, present it as somebody who, who is not really for, you know, protecting children. But you could also turn it around. You could say this kind of narrative of um suffering children allows to vilify parents all over the world in an in such an extreme way and based on such a such a thin uh, and problematic knowledge base, which would be completely unimaginable when children would not be involved, I would say. You know, when you simply say ninety percent of 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 adults, in, in in country X, country X are like criminal and and violent, so you couldn't say that. But when you add, then uh, when you put the focus on the child, on the children, on the on child protection, um, then you can say it. My name is Gabriel Scheidecker. Currently, I'm based at the University of Zurich. I'm here at the Department of Social Anthropology. Um, Yeah, I just moved here uh, one month ago, the beginning of July this year, um, to start a new project on early childhood development interventions. So I I guess the topic we are are going to talk about today. I'm an anthropologist uh, for my PhD. I did research, ethnographic research on childhood, child development, emotions, socialization in Madagascar, in a rural community of Madagascar. Um, so I, I spent there roughly 15 months and, um, so this was for my PhD. And after that, I, uh, turned to research in Germany, in Berlin, uh, with families with the Vietnamese migration history. And um, here I also focus in particular on the experience, the interaction between um, these families and the welfare system, like especially practitioners of parenting support. So these are, yeah, so these are my two um, uh, research foci Um, and um, yeah, so my current research As I mentioned in the beginning, we'll then focus on early childhood interventions around the globe. And here I focus in particular, um, my own work really aims to um, create like debates between uh, different fields involved. On the one hand, uh, early childhood development science. And on the other hand, um, ethnographic research, because according to my experience, um, these fields are largely isolated. So this is what I'm currently working on.
0: Well, you're singing my song because I, I originally came across your work um, and just, just reading the abstract uh, of a paper. Poor Brain Development in the Global South? Challenging the Science of Early Childhood Interventions by Gabriel Scheideker and co-authors, 2023, Ethos, Journal of the Society for Psychological Anthropology. Global Early Childhood Development, or ECD, an applied field with the aim to improve the brain structure and function of future generations in the Global South, has moved to the center of international development. Global ECD rests heavily on evidence claims about widespread cognitive, social and emotional deficits in the Global South and the benefits of changing parenting practices in order to optimize early childhood development. We challenge these claims. And it w- it made me sort of cheer out loud because it was exactly what I had been sort of arguing and saying and thinking, but in a different context and said much better than I ever could, uh, which is th- that how could people not see that arguing that poverty is caused by you get, poor cognitive development is a rehashing of centuries-old very racist discourse, but through, you know, three layers of thick, fawning, social justice rhetoric. And I wondered, could you tell me a little bit about that um, About that paper? Um, so what is global early childhood development?
1: Okay, I mean, first of all, I should, um, I should mention maybe that I'm not coming from this field myself. As I said before, I'm coming from anthropology. So I'm actually yeah working on this field, about this field, with this field. And um, yeah, just started a few years ago, so I'm also not a complete expert, but um, I mean, um, in my work with uh, about parenting intervention, parenting, um, um, parenting support, I came across this field and started to be really interested in it because I found that the scientific claims or the claims in general are so much different from what we usually um, what what we usually point out in anthropology about child development. and in fact, it was really shocking to see that, as you also just pointed out, to really um, 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 explain um, social inequality by mental capacities. Um, yeah, so it is a, I, I would say it is an emerging field of international development and uh, um, humanitarian aid. It emerged, uh, I would say, um, in the 90s, 1990s um, through several um, studies, for example, in, in Jamaica, and um, but it really, uh, I think it is really now that we are um, experiencing the, the a global implementation of early childhood development interventions. So, um, and, and I should also add that this is a field which is strongly promoted by all major organizations in the field of international development, like UNICEF, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, and also NGOs like Save the Children and many others. Um, and it, uh, yeah. In two thousand eighteen, the nutrient care framework has been launched. so this is a, a framework for the global implementation of early childhood development. It has been accepted by the World Health Assembly in two thousand eighteen as well. so it is really the official program. Um, and this may be important to to know that as a background um and now uh, concerning the like the ideas. Of this field, so I think the fundamental idea is that um, poverty is really reproduced by poor early childhood development. Um, of course, not only, but the idea is that this is a major factor for reproducing or perpetuating poverty. So the idea is that um, in yeah, what what is framed as as poor or the context of poverty, um, children in early childhood are not uh, fostered um, op- optimally. So um, uh, the child-rearing practices um, uh, do not really uh, foster optimal early childhood development. They mostly refer to cognitive development, but also to socio-emotional development. And then that this suboptimal Early childhood development would lead to um, poor school achievement um, in middle childhood and then low adult productivity in, in adulthood. And, uh, um, and then this would lead to a next generation of poorly developed individuals. And in this way, so this, this idea of the intergenerational transmission of poverty um, would then perpetuate um, the, the situation. And um, now the idea is um, to change this cycle or to 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 break through through um, early childhood development interventions. Um, I, th- I would say that most of these interventions focus actually on parents, on mothers, um, aiming to change their parenting practices, their behavior, according to a to a set of best parenting practices or what are believed to be best parenting practices, and then this would like enhance early brain development and then um, lead to higher school achievement and uh, higher adult productivity to so turn around this dynamic. So this is the, the basic idea. And most importantly, I think that um, these ideas are pre- presented as based on scientific evidence.
0: There's a lot in what you just said that I want to come back to, particularly this idea of of mothers. And you hear this all the time and you just sort of passively accept it because it's wrapped up often in the rhetoric of like women in the global south are the futures. We're not talking about population control. What I'm talking about is giving women the power to save their lives, to save their children's lives and to give their families the best possible future so it sounds really feminist what they mean is we need to intervene to make them better mothers to stop them having so many children this sort of thing is often what they mean by women are the future and also that you can't give any money to men because they're not trustworthy this this kind of thing but I was wondering now it's, it's probably not enough for me to just state oh my gosh I can't believe this rhetoric is coming back because actually it's it's also coming back it's it's there on the left where things that sound kind of leftish, you know it sounds very social justicey and so on and it's hidden in the spawning language and often often it uses a language of decolonization as well, which is strange um not strange at all, actually if you think about it, but it's also coming back on the right, so you see people kind of reacting to what they perceive as a left wing rejection of science in favor of constructionism and so on everything is social constructed and And so they've started sort of rehashing old race science, IQ, this sort of thing. They're saying, so what? I'm just going to say it. White people are smarter. You know, this kind of thing is coming back. So maybe it does need to be explained. Why is the science here not convincing? I think this is the big pushback that I often get too. It's like, oh, Ashley, you just ignore the science. So what's wrong with the so-called science that is supposed to underpin this stuff?
1: Okay. Um, I mean, first of all, I want to say I'm not like, trying to criticize science in general. I mean, my, my aim is really um, to, to, to improve uh, the knowledge base of such interventions. And um, in my view, the, the main problem is um, that this field, global early childhood development interventions, operates in the global south, um, but has really little evidence on the context in which they, they operate. Um, most most of the research, um, or let's say the basic research, which defines um, normal childhood, normal in quotation mark, um, childhood development, best parenting practices and so on. Uh, most of that research has been conducted in uh, Western middle classes, in fact, in in the US and, and a little bit in, in the UK, so one could say most of it has been conducted in maybe Anglophone Western middle class settings, and um, and then um, so uh, these findings um, are then simply like projected to the rest of the world. Of course, they have also applied research in these settings, like randomized controlled trials. but this this kind of research is most of the time applied. And it relies heavily on all the, the, uh, the standards and uh, normative frameworks, which have been developed in one context. Um, maybe I could give you an example also from my research. So when when it comes to, and I also should say most, most of the evidence is really indirect. So uh, for example, the idea um, that the majority of young children in in con- countries of the global south do not receive adequate early stimulation what, what is believed to be uh, crucial for brain development or cognitive development so um they have um, this question is, um, uh, which 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 simply asks like mothers or parents something like you know have you played with your child in the last so and so days and then they say no um, for example, and and then um, they uh, derive from 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 these data. Okay, these children do not receive any early childhood stimulation. But now we know from uh, from anthropolo- anthropological research about children, from cross cultural research, cross cultural psychology, from culture psychology, from many other fields that. Um, Children in in many contexts grow up with many other, many more people than just the parents. And for example, in Madagascar, where I did my PhD research, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, I really focused on the social network of children and found that children in, in this context, most of the time play with other children. And in fact, it is true. That uh, they rarely play with adults because adults don't see themselves as play partners of children, but that does not at all mean that children rarely play. They play the whole day, and so this simple fact of like what is called has been called multiple caregiving or distributed care um, um, is ignored, and and then you 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 come to the finding. Um, these children do not receive early childhood stimulation because their parents do not play with them. So it, it is based on a simple projection of a nuclear family model. We have most, most of the time in Western middle classes, um, uh, to, to other contexts where this model doesn't fit. So, um, and so this would be an example of a rather indirect like evidence I mean, it's not only the problem then of early stimulation, how they measure it, but then also um, like um, deriving from from this observation then like that the brain doesn't develop properly or something like that. So there are so many um, so many gaps, I would say, and potential biases, which are not really um, not really attended to in my.
0: For me, this all seems really, really obvious, and I don't, I don't know if it's because I come from a peculiar background or because I come from an anthropology background. But when I read these critiques, it's, it's so blindingly obvious that this is a, an error, that you cannot, uh, project, Western middle class parenting norms onto the rest of the world as an ideal, and then measure up the rest of the world and say, oh wow, everybody is not uh, raising their kids properly. But, you know, it, it surprises me when I'm teaching, when I tell the students that in the anthropological record, parents playing with children, and especially like mothers playing with children is very rare. The last thing a mother wants is for her child to see her as a playmate. You know, when you've got tons of things to do, you don't want your child to see you as a playmate. They go play with the other children. Um, and they're shocked to hear this because they have been learning all this time that how important it is to play with your children, to say this many words to your children and blah, blah, blah. And you've got the science to prove it. and yet. The majority of humanity doesn't raise their children like that. Um, But I wondered, could they really be making such a mistake? I mean, it it seems so obvious. I mean, uh, do they really not at all account for these things? Like how does, how do cultural norms figure into these reports or analyses, if at all?
1: I mean, for me, it is is really difficult and maybe also not not the most important thing to um figure out what are the intentions behind um those scientists whether they believe in in what they are claiming or not but um i mean to a certain extent i can i think i can um i can believe that they believe in 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 what they are saying I mean, it's it is also. I, 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 first of all, I would say that um, parenting pra- practices are extremely morally charged. Um, um, I think there there are a few other things which which you find so important, and which you um, which is also when you see different practices where it's so difficult not to respond with a with a moral judgment. Let's say. I can say this also like from my own experience when when beginning my um, my research in 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 Madagascar when I saw like really different practices or when I saw like what what may look like uh disinterested parents or some something like this so I think there there is there can be an immediate if if you have never seen like something else really than than let's say western middle class parenting, so you can easily have this impulse of of thinking, oh this these poor children they're really not well taken taken care of and so on and I mean as anthropologists and I think also as sociologists or um, yeah as scholars from other like uh, disciplines which have more of an explore, exploratory approach, you have the chance to like uh, get over this initial initial tendency, maybe to to judge and really try to to understand um, why is it why why is it different than what what you would expect. And um, but this is these are all my my imaginations. I mean, when I imagine now I'm a scientist coming, let's say from pediatrics, because um, more, many of the scientists involved in global ECD, they are pediatrics. I don't think they have the time to really spend, let's say, with uh, families in a different context to really learn um, um, what what the views are and, and, and the reasons and so on. And also it is really, I think in this, in, in this scientific background, it is much more applied from the beginning um, in the medical field, of course. So I think you also learn already in, um, when, when studying, you learn to differentiate what is, what is healthy, what is unhealthy, more or less in this um, binary logic. So this, this would be my spontaneous take on it. But as I said in the beginning, yeah, it, I'm also, I also don't want to be too quick to to judge them on on a personal level. Maybe if if we would have started started from this uh, medical field as a pediatrician, maybe I would also tend to do the same. And I think, um, as you also said in the beginning, many of these things sound really good at the first glance. I mean uh, what should be bad about um um supporting children to get you know the best uh, development possible or to have the, the, the to to um experience well-being and and so on and so forth
0: It's just really amazing to me that scientists can produce these kinds of estimates and not think like uh, gee I might have made a mistake here because <laughs> for instance in another paper you point out An estimated 250 million or 43 percent of children under five years in low and middle income countries are regarded as at, at risk of not achieving their full developmental potential because of inadequate care. That is crazy. Like almost half of the children. And like I can just imagine them being like banging their fists on a table. That is an injustice, you know, and we demand adequate care. for. We need to support parents. You know, I can well imagine how they would frame that. And they would not think like, that's way too high a number. And then you get to the more absurd estimates like uh, 99.5% of Chad, 99.5% of the children in Chad. Do you think maybe there's something wrong with the way that you're estimating? And can you, can you give a little bit of context to that 99.5% estimate for Chad? How did that number, how do they produce a number like that? that 99.5% of the children in Chad are at risk of not uh, re- reaching their developmental potential.
1: Yeah. So um, um, this is a study we we, we criticized um, and uh, this study was uh, is based uh, mainly on the mixed, the multiple indicator cluster survey of, of Unicef. So this is a, a large scale survey that is, I think, uh, has is conducted in in almost every country with a with a sample which is supposed to be a representative. So this is really a big. Uh, I mean, this is a way where really a lot of money and a lot of funds are needed um, uh, to conduct these surveys with thousands thousands of participants in in every country of the globe. So so. Um, um, and now they, um, I, I mentioned that earlier. So they have uh, particular questions to 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 screen um, like potential problems in uh, in the way children are taken care of. And um, so what we were focusing in our critical commentary about was as early early stimulation or early learning opportunities for early learning, or just. Uh, I also described the, the example of Madagascar. So, um, for early learning, they used uh, like two questions. Um, I cannot reproduce them like word by word. Uh, so the first question is basically, does the child attend an organized organized childhood program, so something, I guess, like a, a kindergarten or, or things like that, um, an early childhood program. And the second question was, uh, does the child have a book or toy at home? And um, if if uh, one question was responded to negatively, so let's say the child had a book and a toy at home, but did not attend an organized childhood program, then it was categorized as minimally adequate care or minimally adequate early stimulation in that case um if if both were absent so if the the child had neither a toy or a book at home and did not attend a program then it was categorized as not even minimally adequate early stimulation and uh yeah i guess that in in chat for example um 99.5 of of the parents res- responded with no we don't have that. And um, yeah, so I, um, I, I think I, I repeat a little bit the points I already told before. I think it is really easy to see how these two questions um, exclude all other p- potential forms of early learning. And I can um, explain that a little bit again with, with my research in Madagascar. It is true that these children do not have a book at home um, and toys at home. Nope. Actually, nobody in that community has a book at home and they are, they also don't have these toys. Um, I mean, the question (laughs) then is also, of course, how, how to define the toy, how to define the home. Here uh, in this context, children play the whole day with all kinds of things um which they found in the which they find in the real world around them in the village so these children um i mean they don't even spend much time um in in the home uh they they they, they just sleep there and uh, the whole day they explore the environment and they are able to to freely do that so um to completely ignore this fact um that there are so many other ways of of early learning is in my view i mean for me this is really a case where i wonder okay this should be so obvious and so easy to see that there are other ways and also with a with a early childhood program i mean who who says that children can can only learn if they attend something like a kindergarten um uh, this is like I, I mean even let's say in in germany the kindergartens I'm not saying that kindergartens are bad at all, but I'm just saying that there are also other other ways children um, can learn. So, um, maybe coming back to your question about the, the intention behind it, or like how I would, what I would blame the science for. So I would not blame them that there are bad intentions behind or something like that, I think they are really I assume most of the time, really good intentions.
0: In fact, uh-huh. that's part of the problem, because then it means that they're less likely to stop and think, like, am but I what, the bad guy?
1: But what, 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 what is my criticism that these scientists do not look for other evidence and for potentially contradicting evidence, but that they just look for the evidence which supports these preconceived ideas about about deficit early childhood development in these contexts. Because uh, these studies, I mean, I just mentioned, I just referred to my own research in Madagascar, but there are thousands of other studies, uh, which one could look in, and and especially if one um, um, organizes interventions or or creates evidence about countries and contexts where... where, um, which are completely foreign to one to to the researcher. So, um, why not look into the existing ethnographic research on these contexts before?
0: Did they not sort of nod to it? Because, as I say, as I keep saying, it just seems so obvious that there are just other ways of educating children in different cultures, Um, surely they must sort of nod to this, or is it just literally when they produce these papers, they talk about the injustice of it?
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, it is really the question, who designed these um, multiple indicator cluster surveys and and this question, and who checked if uh, these questions are really, um, if there's really, um, if these are really externally valid. Because as you say, it is, you don't need to be an anthropologist or sociologist of childhood to see that uh, these questions are simply derived from like a model, which does not maybe even exist in, 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 in Western context. And it is so obvious that when you um, project this, uh, this model or this idealized model to another context, that you always always find deficits, you cannot find anything else than, than, than deficits, unless this community happens to, to work exactly the same as, as I don't know, Western West middle-class context. And, but I should also add that um, it is not only a problem of these sciences, I think it is also partly a problem of my own science or my own discipline, let's say, or related disciplines like anthropology, sociology, and so on. I mean, we have, we, we tend to be always critical about research in, in neighboring disciplines, especially um, in, in medical disciplines or um, disciplines that, that use rather quantitative approaches. But I wonder why have we been so unsuccessful to really make sure that our criticism reaches those we are criticizing? Um, I mean in anthropology we um uh, we talk so much about decolonization and all these is- issues but at the same time um we do nothing if if there's like a, a new field emerging which you could really frame as as a severe form of of neo neo-colonialism as you said in the beginning um which is based on on assumptions and claims which are not not much different from from those assumptions and claims on which uh, historical colonization was based on. So my question is also as an anthropologist: Why have we failed to really reach those we are criticizing, and and how can we do that better in the future? And uh, I, I think my my main answer why we have failed is that we really tend to. Um, to share our criticism with our colleagues from the same discipline. Um, this does not necessarily happen intentionally. We, we, we publish it in, in anthropological journals. We use a specific terminology. Uh, we draw on taking for granted uh, concepts and positions and so on. And then, of course, um, it is highly likely that our colleagues will read it, that they will also agree to it and it is highly unlikely that those we are we are pretending so to say to criticize that they will simply ignore it or not even take take notice of it
0: i think also a related question is why is there so little critique so when it came to indigenous people and research on indigenous people i went to a conference 10 years ago and immediately I I I was looking around. And I was like, "Oh my God, this is incredibly insulting." And yet, there were there were Indigenous people there, you know, clapping and, "Oh, this is great." And and everybody was like, "Oh, it's so important to improve the well being of Indigenous people and improve the and the the, men, the lack of mental health support is a travesty. The government needs, you know." And it was very much in the language of social justice and so on. But you had to think like, "Well, what is the underlying?" explanatory framework for social problems on reserves if the travesty is that the government doesn't give enough mental health support. It's that we are, we have cognitive deficits. That's what they were saying. They were saying that that through the legacy of colonialism, we have, you know, we have deficits in how we raise our children because we would never learn to be mothers. Was I My mother's white, first of all. So how does that explain anything (laughs) that goes wrong in my life? But like, you know, not everybody went to residential schools. You know, there were only of the like of that generation in my family, only like I think two or three out of seven or nine children. I can't remember. It was lots of children, but lots of them died in infancy. Um, only like two or three of them went to residential school. So, like, how does that explain any kind of problems that we have? Right? But just because this this overarching explanatory framework through these deficits. But there I could find three or four people who are really criticizing this intergenerational trauma idea. It's just, you know, nobody Not only does nobody question it, but it gets framed as decolonization. And if you're like a good person in the social sciences, you should be banging on about decolonization, decolonize this, which just means like better representation for indigenous people in the existing social hierarchy, but not really questioning the fundamental basis of why there is that inequality. Like some reserves don't even have drinking water, but we're supposed to like have, you know, through healing somehow, some way, we're going to solve all these problems. <clears throat> to me, it sounds really ludicrous. So I guess the question is, why is there so little critique? You know, mm. what is it that seems to draw so many people in the social sciences to actually joining that crusade rather than questioning it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I, I, yeah. For me, I mean, as a, like, white Western person, it's, it's I mean, I cannot, you know, Give really a lot of explanations why, um, let's say, as as you mentioned in 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 indigenous communities in in the US or so, there's so little critique. I mean, I can maybe um, give some like uh, more general ideas about uh, the question. So why is this explanatory framework so attractive? Um, I think first of all it is attractive to to any to all elites whether whether they come from the west but uh, or or they come from uh, let's say a country like Madagascar or Vietnam um, I mention also Vietnam because I um, have also done some research there and and planning um research there so this um this idea is attractive to to elites because um, um, first of all, it tells okay. This these problems have nothing to do uh, with my own privilege. Uh, these people are poor; they suffer because, um, um, yeah, in this case, because of the way they raise their children, and and so all we have to do is I don't have to change anything with myself. I have simply uh, I can simply help them. In in uh, in healing and in, in, in getting better and so on, and um, and I think so. Yeah, on the one hand, you can uh, see the problem in in the other in the poor. So uh, on the other hand, you can see yourself as somebody who helps, and this is also a kind of help which is is rather easy. Um, so you you just organize these parent, these behavior change interventions, and you can think already, okay, I have done something good, and and uh, achieved something. And let's take uh, the example of um of Vietnam. Um, but I think we could also take any any uh, most other countries. So um there these these early childhood interventions focus uh, really mainly on minorities. Um in Vietnam, and of course to the for the government, uh, for the elite, uh, this is a, a very good um, idea. okay, these minorities they suffer, and so on because of childring. they do not suffer because they have been marginalized um, and 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 so on and and so forth. And I think this is also what adds what i find, what really adds a problematic um dimension to these frame frameworks because um they they provide a rationale or justification to uh, settings all around the world to to um, to not not um not aim to to um to not really aim to to change anything on a structural level but to simply um basically blame um, um those people for their um, for their own situation. Um, so this is maybe one, um, one reason why so many, um, also, so I think it doesn't really depend whether you're a Westerner or not, or whether you belong to this uh, specific culture, but it uh, more, I think it, it more relates to whether you have, a, a, whether you are more privileged or less privileged in the situation. Because I, I mean, as I said before, I don't know about these uh, people who in indigenous community who who like applaud to it, but I th- I, I would guess that most of the time, um, people who who appreciate it, they don't see it uh, as really their own problem. They they wouldn't say that okay, I'm doing doing it also wrong, but they would say okay, the others are doing it wrong, are doing it wrong. Um, yeah. So this is maybe uh, one. Uh, one explanation. Another explanation is, I think that um, for researchers and and practitioners, uh, these inter- international organizations offer all kinds of all kinds of opportunities. Uh, my colleague Nandita shortly, um, often um, has yeah often mentions or has has told that, uh, for example, in in the context of India. Uh, UNICEF pays so much more than most other organizations, so there are really strong incentives to to work. I mean, it's it's so attractive to work for these organizations, and of course, uh, when you work for these organizations, you also need to um, um somehow uh, buy into buy into these these ideas, and and I, I think the same goes for uh, researchers and scientists. Um. Uh, I mean they also depend often depend on funding from countries uh from the global north and um and but this is also now again i think a problem a little bit of anthropology and our science we should not forget i mean these uh these sciences e c d sciences they do studies in these countries in collaboration with uh, with local institutes and 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 researchers and so on um, so they they provide this kind of funding. But in return, I would say they receive um, they receive how can I say that? Um, uh, in return the, the there's a strong incentive for the local researchers to also um, to to repeat these ideas and to support these ideas or in, in the other uh, to see it the other way around to to avoid criticizing those people. Which provide the funding and and which provide the, the opportunities to co- to to participate in these large scale studies and to maybe then um, be co author of a publication in a in a high impact journal. So I would yeah I see these two reasons basically for these tendencies, and then of course. It is also maybe a third one would could be like cultural, culturally. I mean, the, the, the elites uh, in, in, in the countries around the world, I mean, um, they belong, I, I think, also to a common um, culture, which is really close to this um, a Western middle class culture and which also uh, affects child rearing. So they may also be convinced that this specific way of, of dyadic, child-rearing, parent-child interactions, having eye contact, having these lengthy conversations, playing with the child, smiling, and so on, that that these are the best things for, for child development.
0: I think part of reason, too, why there is an attraction to some of these um, initiatives is that, as you said, like there's funding involved, right? So if you can promise, like, I'm going to do this intervention, it's going to have this outcome. It's much easier to get into uh, to get funding as opposed to sort of like the sort of lengthy exploratory research, which can be quite expensive as well. And you can't promise you can't promise in the end what you're going to find. But I think, too, like there's also an incentive to jump on board of things that sound so good and in increasing become personally risky to question some of these things that just sound really good, these crusades. So one of the things that I've had a lot of flack about is that I've been really against the idea that governments should outlaw corporal punishment, which UNICEF is actually a big player in. Um, and in that, you know, if you look at the entire world, you know, the vast majority of cultures use some form of corporal punishment and they're very careful about how it's sort of um, embedded in, in the culture. Um, you know, some will have like third party discipline, this kind of thing. Um, But it exists everywhere. And the idea that you should throw parents in jail, all around the world, by the way, because it's a global crusade, and they actually go to poorer countries first, where there's a democratic deficit. Standpoint Magazine 2019 by Ashley Frawley Campaigners claim more than 50 countries have banned smacking as evidence of a turning tide. But let's look at this list. Togo banned smacking in 2007. Why would a populace facing serious poverty and high child mortality demand a smacking ban? The answer is that they did not. The Togolese law appears connected to an IMF World Bank poverty reduction program involving a suite of policy guidance, including a UNICEF-supported children's code banning corporal punishment. Such crises abroad often represent opportunities to institute unpopular policies whose existence becomes a goad for policy change at home. But a worldwide awakening to the goodness of positive parenting, this is not. But when they were getting a, um, a, uh, an IMF um, sort of bailout, one of the conditions was for UNICEF to write their children's code and they outlawed corporal punishment. And luckily, you know, it's not going to be enforced in countries where, you know, they're dealing with childhood AIDS. <laughs> um, But they use that as a goad then. Oh, look at all these countries around the world waking up to the right way to raise children. You, you, England, you, Wales, you, Scotland, you, United States, you need to do this too, and questioning that has got me so much flack. Where I just thought it would be just so much easier just to not say anything, you know. And I yeah. wonder if you had anything to say about that. Visit patreon.com/slash ashley a froley for part two.